today because he damaged his ankle quite severely. I think he tore all of the ligaments. He's not with us, but he did send his paper. Oh, I'll leave over here. Which I think will be quite intriguing, but uh, for the sake of discussion, having the, the papers from Nabil and uh, John more forcefully in your minds, I think might be uh, kinder for them who can respond in the discussion. Uh, Peter Midgley, just to give a little bit of background, he, he might not state it this way himself, so I will be his immodest representer, uh, completed his MA under uh, Andre Brink, uh, and also worked in the archives where Brink's papers were donated, so he's had very close access to a lot of material uh, on Brink, but not too many other scholars that have had the opportunity to look at, uh, especially since the archives are sealed until after his death. Uh, Peter Mitchell received his PhD in English from the University of Alberta, writing on South African literature, and his MA in Afrikaans and Dutch from Rhodes University in South Africa. Uh, he's working on a monograph on the South African author, author Andre uh, Brink, as well as a critical edition, I'm going to mispronounce this, of Salty Plakey's novel, Moody. Uh, Peter also doesn't mention it, but he's currently one of the editors of the University of Alberta Press. So, coming into Peter's paper, which he has titled, In the Shade of Mount Olive. <clears throat> it was Ron Ayling who first stated the obvious. Andre Brings the Ambassador begins with an epigraph taken from Lawrence Durrell. Quote, Love is a form of metaphysical inquiry. And most of you who know the quartet will recognize that quotation. But, beyond making the general point that the book contains shifting viewpoints reminiscent of Durrell's Alexandria Quartet, he left the matter alone. Most Afrikaans critics haven't paid much attention to the epigraph either, simply stating that a young author living in Paris between 1959 and 1962, Brink was influenced by Durrell. The Ambassador was originally published in Afrikaans in 1963 as the Ambassador, I'm going to mispronounce the Afrikaans, more like it's German, uh, it was subsequently translated into English in 1964, not by Brink. In 1967, Brink retranslated the book and published it in the United Kingdom as File on a Diplomat. In 1982, he revised the Afrikaans version, restoring passages that had been deleted from the original manuscript, then retranslating it and published it under its original title. The Ambassador, set in Paris circa 1960, is Brink's fifth novel and the first to appear in English translation, so it's fairly significant for him. Although the characters are white, and the book deals only peripherally with South Africa and South African politics, it is a quintessentially South African book. Stephen Cater, the third secretary at the embassy, decides to report the ambassador for his infidelity with a young woman, Nicolette Alford. Although his allegations are based solely on circumstantial evidence <clears throat> and are unfounded at the time he submits the report, the charges subsequently turn out to be true. In addition, the ambassador's career-making, or breaking, clandestine arms negotiation with the French government go wrong in the wake of the Sharpeville Massacre, where the nationalist government shot 68 protesters and wounded 200 more. Overcome by remorse for destroying the ambassador's marriage and his career on false grounds, Cater commits suicide. The ambassador is recalled to South Africa pending the outcome of the official inquiry, but it is evident that he will suffer the wrath of a Calvinist government that is rapidly being ostracized from the rest of the world for its apartheid politics. I think the parallels to the quartet are becoming increasingly obvious at this point. <coughs> Brink has often noted that he was born on a bench in the Luxembourg Gardens in 1960, uh, a rebirth of sorts. 
After completing an MA in Afrikaans in 1957 and then an MA in English in 1958, Brink continued his studies in comparative literature at the Sorbonne. Paris was a revelation to an inquiring young mind, despite trying to break free from the restrictions of his Calvinist upbringing. He had arrived at the hub of creative and intellectual activity. Also, the Algerian War of Independence was at its peak, exposing Brink at close range to Africans who were asserting their right to independence and human dignity. At the Sorbonne, Brink was exposed to intellectual and political debates with fellow Africans who up to now had been seen only in the role of laborer or servant. He discovered the work of Sartre, and especially Albert Camus, whose Pied Noir background he could readily identify with. <clears throat> when he returned to South Africa in 1962, he and several other young Afrikaans writers who hadn't been in Paris with him, uh, Jean Rabier, uh, Breton Breitenbach, among others, started the movement that became known as the Sestigers. Someone might correct my pronunciation. Uh, determined to expose a new generation of Afrikaners current, uh, of Afrikaners current trends in work to, in world literature and to challenge the social, political, and intellectual conservatism they faced in their home country, the Sestigers furiously imitated European models and translated world classics into Afrikaans. Where there were gaps in the Afrikaans literary oeuvre, they attempted to fill them. Brink, for example, wrote several absurdist and existentialist plays. His experimental novel, Orgi bears some thematic resemblances to Burroughs' Naked Lunch. There are uh, attempts to fill in Afrikaans literature with material that is not already represented. But their enthusiasm for change also split the group into those favoring the pursuit of l'art peur and those seeking a more politicized literature, and it brought them into conflict with the government. Officials threatened to ban the ambassador for its sexual content. Not terribly controversial at this point in time, I should say. Uh, Government agents began to harass Brink, trying to uncover suspected leaks in the Foreign Service, for as it happened, an ambassador in Europe was accused of having an affair, and the South African government was engaged in clandestine arms negotiations with France. Given the climate of political and intellectual upheaval in South Africa, and Brink's own increasingly vocal opposition to apartheid in the time before the novel appeared, it would seem almost irresponsible to dismiss Brink's epigraph as nothing more than youthful infatuation with a particular author. <clears throat> My paper, Peter's paper, therefore focuses mostly on trying to unravel the significance of the Dural epigraph, leaving a more detailed comparison with the Alexandria Quartet for later exploration. However, some of the more obvious correspondences with Dural's work and methodology include the shifting narrative voice, the shift between first person and third person between different narrators in the book, um, the use of arms deals as a ruse to drive the narrative, and the femme fatale, Nicolette, who, like girls Justine, repeatedly invents her, her past, thus denying to us the opportunity to get to know her fully. Mount Olive, too, is a member of the diplomatic corps, whose intellectual development is aided by a sexual relationship with Lila Hosnani, the colonized woman who quotes Ruskin. Brink's constant efforts over the years to destabilize the text also remind one of one that no two editions of the quartet are the same. Some changes are cosmetic, others are significant. The original Afrikaans edition contains a two-page note explaining the relationship between fiction and reality and justifying the use of diplomats within a fictional setting in South African fiction. This should also be reminiscent of the, of the quartet. Uh, he also hints at another influence, Georges Simenon's Le Président. Uh, Brink had subsequently translated several Simenon novels into Afrikaans. 
In the corresponding 1964 English edition, the author's note occupies a mere eight lines that summarize only the last two paragraphs of the Afrikaans note. In 1967, embarrassed by the quality of the 1964 translation, Brink retranslated the book and published it as File on a Diplomat. Although he calls it a mere retranslation, it does contain some editorial changes, including some passages that are not in the original Afrikaans, and significantly deleting the last two sentences in the author's introductory note, quote, the novel is not to be regarded as a commentary on the conduct of South African diplomats abroad or diplomats in general. <clears throat> Suddenly, the novel regains a political dimension that had been muted in the earlier version. Very much so, I think. In 1982, Brink revised the Afrikaans edition and again retranslated it. This time, there are differences between the corresponding Afrikaans and English version, and rather than being a translation, the 1982 edition of The Ambassador should be considered a creative reworking of the book in English. Brink restores some of the passages he had originally deleted from his earlier drafts, passages that emphasize the South African connection and make it clear that the author intended the novel to be an indictment of the South African government. Reworking his books during translation is typical of post-1976 Brink. While working on An Instant in the Wind, Brink realized that the voice of the European woman persistently came to him in English, while the voice of the escaped slave came to him in Afrikaans. He thus wrote the book in both languages, cross-translating as he progressed. He also became aware of his audience and began redrafting sections to cater to his readers' expectations, a practice he continues to this day. Comparison of the different editions, therefore, also has to include comparisons of the variation between the Afrikaans and English editions of the same version of the book. I have noted that The Ambassador is a quintessentially South African novel, despite being set in Paris. The obvious question then becomes, why Paris? Obviously, it was the foreign city with which Brink was most intimately connected at the time, thus giving the young author a familiar backdrop that would nonetheless provide a distance, disembodied setting for South African readers, the exotic, in Paris. It is also the city in which Brink experienced a political and intellectual rebirth, but Brink's note in the Afrikaans edition, as well as the epigraph, provides further clues to the intellectual journey in the novel. In the note, Brink reveals an awareness of just how sensitive the South African government is to criticism. He explains at length that fiction does not necessarily correspond with reality, and how the distinction between fiction and reality allows a writer like Georges Simenon to create a fictional president without anyone seeking a real-life counterpart. How creating the physical distance is important to allow for intellectual distance as well, especially in South African contexts. Moreover, Paris lends itself to so much more than just a physical setting, he maintains. And he argues that the spiritual milieu of the city is indispensable to the story. We, as readers, are thus invited to explore this spiritual milieu. And Durrell's remark that love is a form of metaphysical inquiry forms a central part of this game we are invited to play. Crucial to an understanding of Brink's use of Durrell here is the connection Durrell makes between love and metaphysical. It is through love, and by extension the body, that Brink is able to embark on an intellectual exploration of his world. Of Nicolette, Cato remarks, if there did exist any causal relationship between her actions, it led from talking to sex and from sex 
to eating. That was her only hierarchy. A few pages later, he explains his own journey of sexual self-discovery. Most of my sexual experiences, quote, had been vicarious, via Henry Miller, Frank Harris, Desaad, Apollinaire, and all the anonymous little books in the green or beige covers of the Olympia Press. Some of you might recognize that Duro was a major exponent and supporter of the Olympia Press, having uh, published his first major book through uh, the Obelisk Press, which was uh, Jack Kahane's work before it was transformed into the Olympia Press after his death. So a, a series of very specific references. And again, he asks, <clears throat> but what does knowing someone mean? As for the biblical meaning, there was that one night, ellipsis. If the connection is not yet obvious, Nicolette asks Cater to get her a book from the library. For the next three weeks, Nicolette immerses herself in a scholarly history of philosophy from Socrates to Camus. Shortly afterwards, she reveals that she had a brief affair with a young artist named Jean-Paul. And so on. We are constantly reminded of Nicolette's innate sexuality and then invited to turn our attention to French philosophers and intellectuals. Brink continues this game throughout his oeuvre. In Devil's Valley, one of the characters is named Lucas Vermiette. We learn from Lucas's digging into his genealogy that the name is derived from the Huguenot name Le Hermiette. The game is played on many levels. The last, the last name recalls the name of the French neuropsychologist and philosopher Jean Lermite. But in a bilingual pun, Brink brings Vermite's work on the body, back to the metaphysical and intellectual explorations he embarks on in The Ambassador. Using the French article, le, and relying on the Afrikaans, hermit, hermit <clears throat> we have a clue to Lucas's nature. The hermit, the religious ascetic, this is just the obvious part of it. And so, Brink not only pays homage to Lermiette's corporeal schema and its revolutionary outflow in France Fanon, but allows us to bring the inquiry back to Durrell's connection of love as a form of metaphysical inquiry. But the hint at Lermiette allows us yet another entry into the ambassador, and one that certainly resonates with the subversive political nature of Durrell's own works. Lermiette's work on the body was a major influence on Franz Fanon, another writer whose work Brink undoubtedly encountered during his sojourn in Paris. Paris, then, assumes additional significance, for La Francophonie, Paris was the colonial center, much as London was the center of the British Empire. It is there that the African intellectual revolution was underway at the start of the 1960s. In the author's note, in the original Afrikaans edition, Brink seems to be protesting too much. It is clear that Paris is a center of revolt, and that Brink intends to exploit this connection. Fanon's influence on Brink's thinking is evident throughout The Ambassador. Fanon's first book, uh, Black Skins, White Masks, ends with a prayer. Uh, I'll loosely translate the French. My highest prayer uh, of my body to uh, always become uh, a, a place for my uh, human inquiry. As Jean Calfa points out in his article, Corps Perdu, a note on Fanon's cogito, this supplication becomes a metaphysical meditation in a sense, but one that reverses the Cartesian movement, since what is asserted here is the inseparability of thought and body. And this is precisely what the quotation from Durrell suggests. And it is also very much in line with Brink's own thinking on the relationship between mind and body. Throughout his oeuvre, Brink uses sex and sexuality as vehicles to explore the relations between the mind and the body. 
how our physical existence determines and affects our thinking is central to an understanding of his work. Both Durrell and Brink shift the narrative voice throughout the Alexandria Quartet and in The Ambassador. What is most striking of Fanon's Pont Noir, more so than in the English translation, is the constant shift from nous to je, je to il. Uh, through these shifts in person, Fanon provides us with a sense of a fractured self that becomes objectified. The different voices in The Ambassador similarly prevent us from developing a coherent picture of the characters, of encapsulating the self. Cater hides his personal involvement and any emotion he may feel behind the impassionate mask of objectivity provided by his report while on a diplomat. He observes Nicolette and the ambassador as scientific objects. But this mask of objectivity keeps slipping, revealing Cater's struggle to maintain the distinction between being an object and being objective, much as Fanon reveals the same dilemma in Black Skin's White Masks. For Fanon, the fractured body is a product of colonialism. In the ambassador, what we have is a series of fractured existences. In Black Skins, Fanon puts it thus, My body is given back to me, sprawled out, distorted. And throughout the ambassador, Brink works assiduously to provide a sense of sprawling and distorted characters. For Fanon, freedom is life. Madness is the lack of freedom, as he puts it in his letter of resignation from the Hôpital de Ville-Joinville. La folie est le moyen qui a l'homme se perdu sa liberté. Uh, being without liberty is madness. In Black Skins, as in Sociologie d'une Révolution, Fanon argues that it is only in fighting for freedom that we can truly exist. By the way, please excuse my terrible pronunciation of French. I typically only read, don't speak too much. He also notes in Black Skins that in the revolution, we need to turn to the lumpen proletariat for assistance, as they are the least tainted by colonization. In The Ambassador, the only two people, or the only people who truly live, are the clochards, the social outcasts. Several times, Brink acknowledges that they alone have freedom, and they alone are truly alive. Erica, the ambassador's wife, confides in Cater, Quote, the clochards sleeping on the, me- on the meadow grill can feel the heat coming up from below and the cold night air above them. They can feel. They're out there. They're part of something. And here we are. Look at us, shut in by four, our four walls, protected from that strange spectacle, life, of which we've heard but which we hardly know at all. And later, Nicolette tells the ambassador how she was awakened to living by a clochard in the Luxembourg Gardens, paralleling Brink. He sat beside her, unaware of her presence, drinking his wine with a sense of abandon, of freedom that she envied and that she has tried to recreate and emulate. This, she maintains, accounts for her joie de vivre. Later, as the ambassador recalls his brief tryst with Gillian, he recalls how she had separately quote, tried to break loose, to become free, to be. And after the ambassador first has sex with Nicolette, he remarks that he feels like an ordinary thug. Nicolette replies, thug, vagabond, clochard. It's such a friendly word, clochard, don't you think? I'd love to be one. And then recounts how she felt at peace, free, when she at once pretended to be one. Brink's indebtedness to Fanon, who relies on the body as the site of experience, is evident. Why then not include a quotation from Fanon as the epigraph? Such a move would contradict Brink's efforts to minimize the political aspect of the novel. Moreover, at the time of writing The Ambassador, Fanon's work had already been banned in South Africa, and therefore could not be quoted. 
Uh, this situation lasted until 1990 for, Peter recalls telling us here, in 1987, having, a, uh, having to apply for a letter of permission from the security police to be allowed entry into the banned book section of the university library so that he could read Fanon as part of his undergraduate course in political philosophy. Durrell's quotation, which makes the same connection between mind and body and political expression that Fanon explores in Black Skin's White Masks, becomes an almost obvious choice, offering those willing to do the work an insight into the intellectual debates that influenced Blink Brink's early career. Thank you very much. I think Peter offers us a lot of opportunities for, for further discussion in that paper, and I only wish he could be here, but he will be listening to the recording, so if you have questions or comments, do bring them up in the discussion period. <laughs>